Hello Trippers, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan and your host for another glorious episode of A Trip to the Movies. Thank you for joining me today. I am currently back in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London and in a moment my guest this week, the brilliant J.A. Biona, takes us on his perfect trip to the movies. Thanks for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon, because if you're going to watch a movie, it has to be at an Odeon Lux. For me, there's no better place to experience the mesmerising magic of the big screen. And when I say big, I mean crystal clear, four times sharper, larger than life, I sense big. A place where you can recline in luxury whilst sipping on your favourite tipple as you immerse yourself in the all-consuming power of the story, enriched by epic Dolby Atmos that'll make your spine tingle and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Now that is how to experience a movie, and there's no better feeling. You can book your Odeon Lux experience at odeon.co.uk or via the My Odeon app. Odeon say we make movies better, and they're not wrong. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, do head over to our YouTube channel where the video goes up a few days after the pod. And for all the latest updates or to get in touch with us, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, if you're ready, let's do this. Hello and welcome to the show where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect trip to the movies. This week we are joined by an incredible filmmaker whose eclectic movie CV includes 2007's brilliant supernatural horror The Orphanage, 2012's moving disaster drama The Impossible and 2018's mega blockbuster Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. His latest film is the Oscar and BAFTA-nominated survival thriller, Society of the Snow. It tells the real-life story of the 1972 Andes plane crash and the survivors' attempts to stay alive in one of the most inaccessible and hostile environments on the planet. Joining me to talk about that film and take us on his perfect trip to the movies, it's the wonderful J.A. Biona. J.A. Bayona, it's absolutely fantastic to be able to talk to you about Society of the Snow. Uh, first of all, congratulations on the Oscar nomination and the BAFTA nomination. How how much does that mean to you, specifically for this film? I mean, it's it's been a long project. I read the book more than 10 years ago, and also it's been a very demanding project too, in terms of the physical, the way we shot it in real locations. Uh, so it's it's great to be here, especially the way uh, the audience is embracing the film, which is uh, fantastic. You know, it's a movie shot in Spanish uh, with Uruguayan unknown actors and, and the receptions had been fantastic all over the world, not only in the Spanish-speaking world. So it's, it's great for us. Can you talk us through when you first became aware of the events that take place in the film. What was your first encounter with this story? I guess, like, everybody had the book at home when I was a kid. The book was a bestseller, the original one, Alive, by Pierre Paul Reed. And that was a book that was everywhere. Uh, and I remember watching the pictures I was uh, when I was a kid, very, like, very, very little kid. Um, and then those pictures are... Uh, we we did we did those pictures in the in the mm. film actually. Uh, we were recreating all those images, and then when I when I started to do research on the impossible, a different book written in a very different time, thirty five years after the plane crash, mm. was written by Pablo Bierzi, Society of the Snow, and it was a very different take uh, on the story. And I actually. That book helped me a lot in the movie I was preparing at the time. I was doing The Impossible, and it it helped me to understand some of the some of the episodes of that film. Uh, it gave me the inner life of the characters going through a survival situation. So, like as you mentioned, 2012's The Impossible. That's that's when you first read uh, Pablo Vietti's book. What is it about? these stories, these survival against all sto- all odds stories that uh, that appeals to you, that fascinates you as a filmmaker? You know, like like I was watching um, uh, an hour ago a documentary on Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock, mm-hmm. and he said something very interesting. He said, I am not interested in the ordinary. Uh, actually, 
I am very interested in the extraordinary, but you can take the extraordinary out of the ordinary. I'm thinking about the impossible and society of the snow, which are both based on a true story, but it's a true story that puts your world upside down in a second, that transforms your life in a way that the ordinary becomes extraordinary and ordinary people had to has to do extraordinary things, you know. So I'm 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 more like into that, into something that has a psychological uh, background and ca- interesting characters doing the kind of things that I that I that I would like to see in these kind of situations. Um, in in terms of this story, there obviously was a, a previous film. I think it was 1993. Um, Alive um, came out. What was it about the the story that made you feel it it should be revisited? on film well actually it, it was not me it was the survivors that 35 years after the plane crash they didn't recognize themselves in the tale the the tale was all about heroes hmm. and uh, cannibalism you know that's a very small part of the story uh, and they wanted to gather together again and and rewrite the story, and this is what they what they did with Pablo Bierzi, and that's what I was more impressed about this compassionate perspective on the story. This idea of how um, Pablo Bierzi was able to find that every single person in the plane, on that plane, was important mm. and was fundamental in order to to have sixteen of them surviving. Uh, and I and I think that idea it, it resonates nowadays in a very special way. You know, we live in a in a world uh, full of conflict, and 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 suddenly to to see how these people face the most terrible situation and are able to to do the impossible just by doing things together, you know, like like understanding that you and the other ones are the same, and 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 that was what I attract me from this story to understand that 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 mm, the other one and yourself is the same thing you know that's the this idea on on well, this line from Gustavo Cervino to Roberto Canessa you have the best legs the strongest legs mm-hmm. you need to walk for all of us you know is this an is this unconscious realization that we are all the same you know in terms of telling the story, you opted for a very particular um, way, which is to narrate the story through Numa's eyes, someone who tragically didn't survive. Why was Numa the chosen lens for this story, this narrative? That was the most difficult thing, probably, is to find a perspective that will justify to tell the story again. The survivors wanted to tell the story again and sat, and sat down with Pablo Bierzi and, and wrote a book. Mm. And then I, I met them and I talked to them and I had the impression that they needed the film even more than me. But I, I had to find out what was left to be told in the story. And actually, I think that um, it was very interesting that the more I was uh, into the story, the more this character, Numa Turkati, appealed to me. Uh, he was the last one to die and he was remembered to, to be one of the, the ones that did the most for the other ones. So that raises an immediate question. What, what's the meaning for that? It's totally the opposite of the, the normal hero's journey that you see in a Hollywood film. Mm. No, in a Hollywood film, he will survive. Yeah. And, and I thought that what I was more interested also in, in the book from Pablo Gerthi was this spiritual layer. And by giving um, the perspective of the story to Numa Turcati, I was touching something that was um, immediately something that was almost metaphysical and spiritual. Uh, and, it, and, and suddenly when we thought about that, it made so much sense, so much sense. You know, we were talking about Hitchcock and Hitchcock used to say that you cannot kill your, your main character because people will feel cheated. But that's how, how, would I, how I would feel if I, if I take a plane and I crash in the Andes and I survive one night at 30 degrees below zero, and then I had to use the corpses of my friends, and then uh, there's a moment that you say, okay, one second, where is the limit, you know? And those are the questions I was asking myself while I was reading the story. There's a uh, there's a wonderful moment in the uh, making of uh, when the cast receive the news that they've been selected, 
after I think it was around it was 140 days of filming and considering the intense experiences of your cast uh, has this led to lifelong friendships after the film between these actors yes yes actually I, I was telling one of them the other day that I don't remember any single bad gesture between them mm-hmm. not and it was a very hard shoot you can rem- you, you can imagine 140 days mm-hmm. very far away from home from your family, from your girlfriends, and not eating, like experiencing cold all the time. But they, the, 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 the more difficult it was, the more together they were, which basically what was what our story was about. And I, I, and they are still, they, they all, all of them, they have a, a, a chat on, on WhatsApp, and, and they are all, <laughs> they still nowadays, they are all day texting each other, telling everything about the film. Yeah, that we created like a family, and they they still behave like a family. Um, they uh, they met uh, with uh, the real life survivors, some of the real life survivors of this crash. Can you tell me the importance of those meetings uh, when it came to telling the story and making the film? Well, to me, it was necessary that um, in order to tell the most authentic. Uh, portrait of what happened and uh, we had to be in contact with them um, 15 of them were alive at the time we were shooting so they became um, an ally every day on, on set we had questions and we were able to ask them um, all the actors uh, sat down with them and that started um, like, a, like a relationship with them in a way that it it only increased the commitment they the actors had with the performance, um, and also it was important to also to meet the families of the dead. Uh, this movie a little bit is kind of like an exercise of rescuing the memory of those who stayed in the mountain, um, and we had to keep the names their names in the film. You know the other versions they did on this story they couldn't get to an agreement. So they were not able to use those names. But for us, it was uh, an exercise of rescuing the memory of these guys. So, so we, we needed those names. So we sat down with everybody, uh, with the families of the dead, the survivors. And from the very beginning, when they knew that the, the perspective of the story was to tell what happened through the eyes of one of the guys that stay in the mountain, um, that was very welcome. And, and it created like a like an immediate curiosity about the film. And we had all their support, even though they never read a single line of the script, we always had their support. And nowadays I'm, I'm pleased that they all love the film and, and, and everything went well, you know. But, but there was a moment that they gave us everything and, and we didn't allow them to read the script. Wow. Well, I mean, you, you, you mentioned that you, um, you engaged, and I'm sure you did, with them. Uh, with, um with this the the survivors in numerous conversations to achieve the authenticity that you have done with the film Uh, can i ask in all those conversations were there any poignant words or or pieces of wisdom that they imparted on you that have stuck with you well i mean like like being in contact with these people was always uh, so special because they are very special Mm. uh it's like when you think about that it doesn't matter if we if we are rich or poor, black or white, you know, we all have the same opportunity, which is the opportunity of life. We all have that chance. They had that chance two times. So when you sat down with them and you talk to them, you can feel it. And that puts you in the position. That puts you in the right position in order to, to understand the story you're telling. Uh, you you mentioned uh, the the cast uh, got on very well uh, during the filming over this uh, this arduous 140 day shoot. Was the atmosphere on this film? What was it? What was it like? And was it was it different to other film sets that you've you've been on? Was the atmosphere quite unique for Society of the Snow? It was very emotional. I can tell you there were there were tears every day on set. Not only from the actors, but it was funny that sometimes you could turn around and see your camera guy, your camera operator crying or or, or your cinematographer crying. You know, it was very, very emotional because the, the, the material was very sensitive and it was very special. You know, the fact that we were so 
so much time far away from home, locked in a in a ski resort, shooting at, at those conditions. You know, you you leave you leave the set, but then you go back to the hotel and you find the same people at night during dinner. So it, it, you create like a family, mm-hmm. and and the story was so important for all of us that um, we we all felt the commitment with the story. You know, it, it, there there was this extra uh, element, you know, that increased our commitment. It was very special. It was like a like the, the story is about unity and about facing all together. Uh, one goal in order to to survive, and we felt the same in this film. That we we everybody was important, and and we had to go and work together uh, in order to to get what we really wanted. And uh, you you filmed um, at the actual crash site. You filmed in the Andes themselves. I'm sure that a shoot like this encountered challenges like every film does, but was there a particularly difficult challenge to overcome in getting this film made during the shoot? It was very important to to, to visit the place before starting main photography mm-hmm. because we definitely needed to understand the context. I think it's a movie that if you explain the context, people will understand what the characters do. So it was very important to to understand and uh, the geography and and the atmosphere mm. of that place. And when you and when you are there, you understand how epic was what they did. Uh, when you see the size of those mountains, when it takes you three days to get there to get used to the altitude. I remember the first night I slept there was horrible, the worst headache I I, I remember I ever had. Um, you wake up in the morning and, and, and your bottle of water is a piece of ice. And you, so you, that puts you in the position to understand how epic is what they, what, what they, what they went through. Uh, and we needed that. And also, I, I, you know, I, I, I really wanted to be there and ask for permission. So I remember like visiting the, the graveyard and, and, and tell the spirits or whatever, like, hey, we, we're going to do this and we're going to try our best uh, I know it probably would be enough, but it would be our best, you know. And I remember that when we finished the shoot, because there was so very little snow the, the first year, I went back with some of the actors and we did the same. We visited the, the graveyard and I let them have their talk with 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 the spirits or whatever, you know. I, You know, I think these things are important, you know, uh, because, I don't know, it gives you... Maybe a, an extra an extra commitment with the story you're telling, you know. But it's kind of like beautiful to do that. Um, for anyone who has yet to watch Society of the Snow, it's available now on Netflix. It's a, an incredible piece of work. So, uh, on top of uh, all the awards bodies that are currently congratulating you, let me add my own personal uh, congratulations. It's a, a fantastic film. Right then, it's now time to leave this reality and enter a dimension of pure film where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our guide. We are your audience. J.A. Bayona, let's go on your trip to the movies. So we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer, the hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, J.A., who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? I would, I would love to go because I can ask anyone, mm, right? Anyone. Yeah, I would love to go with one of the pioneers, like like the Lumiere brothers or George Méliès, <laughs> since it would be fantastic to see how they react to a modern projection and a modern film. You know, I can imagine like like showing them like a big movie nowadays. <laughs> how how they will react? That would be fantastic to see. When you say it like a big movie, you mean spectacle, visual effects, everything. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Imagine, imagine uh, George Méliès watching two thousand and one. That's fantastic. That's a great answer. Wait, but w- w- would you? So you'd pick, would you take them to a three D movie? Yeah, that's one of the things that I love the most about Hugo Martin Scorsese's movie mm. that was about George Méliès and the fact that he did it in three D. I think it's probably the best 3D movie I've ever seen in my life because it's justified. Uh, because George Méliès uh, one of, was one of these 
big defenders of cinema as an spectacle, you know? Mm. It's very related to the fairground attractions, you know? And and that's kind of what 3D does for us, you know? It it it, it makes the experience being more like an attraction, you know? And and I I love that moment in the film when suddenly you 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 see George Méliès introducing the, the trip to the moon and 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 that suddenly you see George Méliès movies in 3D. <laughs> I I would love to see George Méliès watching that moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you do think you do think when it's when it's used correctly, 3D is a, a useful part of the audience experience and a filmmaker's tool when it's done right. I think it's when you choose the right picture. Mm. You know, I I think there there are movies to be to be seen on 3D and there are others that, I mean, I don't see myself watching the holdovers in 3D. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point, good point. Uh, so there's a clock on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time of day are we going to the cinema? I normally go at night because I'm normally working all day. So, and I love to 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 go to the movies at night. The, the, some of the people from the cinema theaters I, I, I know here, in Barcelona, they tell me that people don't, don't go that much at, at night sessions, you know, they, they don't go anymore. At, but that's my favorite time to go to the cinema. Uh, is it so that's going to be quite quiet then? Do you like do you like a quiet cinema or do you like a busy cinema? Normally, I like it to be full packed, you know, and it's when you really can um, enjoy the experience of watching a film in the dark with people you don't know. But I normally go at night. Can I can I take you back to the moment when you first watched Society of the Snow with an audience who weren't involved in the film in any way, uh, uh, the first screening of a cold audience, um, where was that? And yeah. where was your head at as the movie began? What were you feeling in that moment? I was um, dying. <laughs> that was the, for probably the test screening that we did. We, we did one test screening in Madrid and um, uh, and I wanted to die. <laughs> that moment I was so nervous. I actually I was not in the cinema. I was outside of the cinema, um, and I and I remember that we were very nervous. But at the very end, some someone came to us with with the scores from the audience, and they were fantastic. And from that moment on, um, everything went really well. <laughs> uh, right then, you booked the tickets for us. Thank you very much. Where in the auditorium are we going to be sitting? Normally, I I like auditoriums that are. The, the, have the steep, you know. I'm not a tall guy, so so the moment somebody a little taller sits in front of me, I cannot see the the the, the whole screen. Uh, and normally, I would love to see in the center of the room, maybe a little closer to the screen. Yeah, that's a it's a po popular seat. That's a popular seat, and I believe I believe yeah. in the center, in the middle, is where the per I, I spoke to a, a sound engineer, and they said that is the perfect place. Cinemas are designed so that all the sound goes straight to the middle seats. Yes, it depends on the cinema. I, I've seen so many different kind of uh, cinemas in the way they work with the sound. Uh, I remember when I was in the, the Venice Film Festival, they sat down. We we sat down in in the line for the for the crew for the for the for the talent, mm -hmm. um, and they t they they warn us. Okay, the sound is very good here, but if you go to <laughs> to the first rows, it's not gonna be that good. <laughs> I was like, okay, so they have the the whole room prepared for the for the director and the and the talent, you know. <laughs> Uh, right then, we're sitting in the middle, in the centre. So the final thing we need before we leave the foyer, the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat? Again, depending on the film, some, some movies are better to see without any any kind of food. I, li I like popcorn, sweet popcorn, yeah. Because obviously these days you can get almost Anything in a cinema, you hamburgers, pizzas, nachos, uh, hot dogs. Yeah. None of that? No, no, not, not in love with the smell of the nachos in the cinema. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I mean, or, or you see old movies and, and you see people going to the movies in the 50s, the 60s, all of them will, will come with their sandwiches and, and all sorts of foods to the cinema you know it's kind of like I, I I don't have a problem with that really I, I love this aspect also of going to the cinema in a very popular way you know I, I, I like that 
Lovely. Well, it's some sweet popcorn for you. It's time to leave the foyer and make our way towards the auditorium. We push open the doors. Now, the corridor is looking pretty bare at the moment, so I'm going to put up some posters that depict some of your important movie memories. And the first poster I'm going to put up depicts your fondest movie memory. Well, fondest probably because it was the, the first memory in my life was seeing Christopher Reeve flying as Superman. And I was three years old. And uh, that's the, f the first memory in my life. And it's funny that I, that the shot in my mind is tighter than what it actually is. Probably because I was sitting very close to the screen <laughs> and it was a huge screen. So, so in, in my mind, I, I, I kept that shot much tighter. But it, I, I, I remember perfectly that, that image. Not, not exactly as it is in the film, but I, I remember. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, three years old is, is very young. Do you, remember, have you, do you remember how you felt in that moment? I don't know. I, I, I remember that every, because I, I became obsessed with Superman. And uh, I remember like going to see all the Superman movies. I was living in, in, um, in, in the outskirts of Barcelona, yeah. so there was not a cinema nearby. So going to the cinema was quite an event. And I remember like going like maybe like one, two, three times per year. But one time for sure was to see the new Superman movie. And I remember like watching the Superman movie and then jumping in my sofa with a red towel and sleeping and having dreams about the film, you know, I was obsessed with, with Superman, with, with flying. And then uh, I started to become more and more obsessed with cinema. So a big question then, as, as, a, as a Superman obsessive, uh, would, you, would you ever direct a Superman movie? Would you be interested in that? Sure, yes. Yes, it would be a, a, a personal approach to it. Uh, I have my own idea of what a Superman movie is. It has to do with the, with the, with the Richard Donner version because I love that one. Um, but yes, yes. But it, it had to be, but if I do a Superman, it would be something very personal. Okay. When you say like uh, to do with the, the Richard Donner version, actually li linked to that first movie. No, no, I don't. It maybe, maybe it doesn't need to be linked that much, but but it's the kind of philosophy and and all the uh, symbolic images that and and um, it's a very profound film. Mario Butcher wrote that film, mm -hmm. and it's very, very smart. It's a very smart film and very interesting in terms of the treatment of the hero and all the mythology. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting film and uh, a, a movie that got Superman right in a way that subsequent uh, films perhaps haven't quite got right. It's like, it's strange that we're here in 2024 now and Superman and Superman 2, the original two Superman movies, are still regarded as the best and no one's been able to capture that again. Yeah, but the very first one is, a, it's actually, it's a good movie. It's a very good movie, you know, and it's a very strange one. You know, I, you, you, you don't see Superman until almost an hour into the film, mm. you have this beautiful section of Smallville that feels like a, like a John Ford movie, you know, with, uh, with these, old, these shots that they all remind me the uh, Wyeth, Andrew Wyeth pictures, you know, it's, it's a beautiful film. Mm. And, and then it becomes like a, like a comedy where you can see Clark Kent and Lois Lane behaving like uh, uh, Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, you know, that mm. kind of screwball comedy. And and it, it's a good movie, and actually it's a very good movie on top of a very good Superman movie on top of that. Mm. Uh, well, lovely. Our first poster then is the original Superman movie, the first memory you have. So let's move on to our next poster, and this poster depicts the last performance that brought you, J.A., to tears. Oof, that's a good one. The last performance that took me to tears. Mm. I would say uh, I was very moved last year with Argentina 1985, the the movie about the trials on the on, on the um, on the politicians from Argentina, um, and I was very moved about Ricardo Darín's uh, the lead character performance. Uh, I love that film from Santiago Mitre. He, he he got a nomination for best international film last year, and I 
And I love that film. Was there a particular moment uh, of his performance in the film and, and what it was that actually triggered you? Yeah, you know, there's a moment at, at the end that the movie becomes like a trial movie. And there's like, a, there's like a beautiful speech that he does on justice and... And, and and it's a it's a it's a it's a I, I was I rem, I I cry like three four times watching that film. It's a very very emotional film. Full disclosure: I have not seen it, but the courtroom drama is is something that as a trope, as a movie trope, the courtroom drama and the final the final scenes in a courtroom drama are really really good moments to get some powerful emotion across. Yeah, yeah. I remember J, JFK was like that that moment with. Uh, Kevin Costner mm. making the last speech. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm putting up a poster for Argentina. You should watch it. It's a fantastic movie, eh? I'm going to. I've got it written down here. It's literally on my to-do list after this. Very, very good film. Yes. Very good film. And it's fun, actually. It's a, it's a very serious um, film, but at the same time, it's it, it, it's very popular and fun. You should watch it. All right. All right. I'm absolutely going to watch that. Thank you. Thank you, J.A., for that hot tip. All right. Time to put up our final poster before we leave the corridor for the auditorium, and it depicts your unpopular movie opinion. <laughs> that's, that's a tricky one. Uh, and this is going to be a very unpopular opinion. Uh, I remember watching uh, Tarkovsky's Andreu Rublev mm -hmm. in the um, Barcelona Cinematheque. Uh, and it was hard to watch. It was like a, it was long, very very long, uh, and there was a moment that you could read on the screen, end of the first part, and I was like, no way, there's a second, there's a second part coming in. That was exactly exactly as long as the first one. So, but you know, I was very young when I watched that, uh, and and I think that I've seen many Tarkovsky movies. Uh, after that, and and I, and I think he's a fantastic director, and visually he's incredible. So I think I, I need to give it the I need to give the film a second chance. Oh, that was what I was going to ask. So you've never you've never revisited it since that first time? No, no, it was too too bad. Because <laughs> to <me. laughs> um, I'm right in thinking this is this is a film that's often this it's, it comes near the top of many lists of the greatest film of all time. Yeah, I know, and I actually I. I I visit Tarkovsky from time to time. I think I think he's a very fun. I mean, he's a fun. He's one of the best. I mean, but I remember like being very young watching that film and having a not a good time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right then, we're going to leave the corridor. We push open the final set of doors into the auditorium. Now there is a crowd of people wanting to join you and George Millier in the auditorium to watch the movie. Do you want to let them in? Do you want a busy cinema? Yeah. The crowd go wild. They pour into the auditorium. Now, before we get to the movie you have picked for us to watch, we're going to play a few other things on the big screen. And the first thing we're going to play is a trailer for the movie you are most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. I would I would love to see, uh, and I think he he doesn't have a movie soon. It's uh, I would love to see another Peter Weir film. I remember meeting Peter Weir um, two years ago, and I asked him what 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 was he doing, and and he was not working in anything in particular. And he's one of my favorite directors, and he's not going. And I'm not sure if he's doing anything at the moment. But I would love to see a new Peter Weir film. When you met him, because I think you're right, it was 2010 was his last movie, The Way Back. The Way Back, which is a pretty good film. Very, it's a pretty good film. It, yes, I, I, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's Colin Farrell is in it, isn't he? It's, it's the, the journey from the, the prison camp. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Ed Harris, uh, I don't remember now. <laughs> yeah, no, it is a good movie. I mean, he's obviously, he's made some incredible films. The Master and Commander, I thought, was, was brilliant. Oh, my God, Masterpiece. Yeah. But if you watch his old... Australian films, uh, Picnic and Hanging Rock, The Wave, The Last Wave. Uh, it's a fantastic director. Uh, and then Witness is a fantastic thriller. When you met him, did uh, did he say why he'd stopped making films? Did he say, did he give any indication? Not really. He told me that he was preparing things, but he he I felt he was a very calm man. He said that he was working on on stuff, but not. Not he was not going to shoot anything anything soon when we talk. It's interesting. As a filmmaker, he he made 
very, I guess in inverted commas, mainstream movies, but they were also like very, very artistic. He 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 inhabited this unique space of um, of making something that was accessible to an audience, kind of like what we were just talking about, but was still a beautiful and and unique kind of work. Yeah, very sensible man, I think, and a lot of attention to detail. Um, he's kind of like very interested in in human nature in a very profound way. His his movies are, have always this kind of like almost like sacred images, you know. Even though you don't say that they feel like religious films, but they, they feel like sacred somehow. It's 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 a fantastic director. I would love to see a new Peter Way film. I would too. I would too. Um, right then. Well, we can't play a trailer. We'll just put up text on the screen demanding that Peter Weir makes a new <laughs> movie. Uh, right. Next up, we're going to play on the big screen the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. I think I'm, I'm, a moment that feels like kind of like very epic to me hmm. is the the ending of the good, ba- the bad, and the ugly, Sergio Leone. When when you have that crazy shot spinning around the character. Uh, one of the characters, and you hear the ecstasy of gold from Morricone. I, I, th- I think that's a moment that it's so crazy. It's pure cinema. It's something that you can only explain through the art of film. It's impossible to recreate that on a on a play, on a book. It's pure cinema, and 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 it's just like a way of telling a a moment, big, mm. epic, fantastic. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a moment that I love. And I'm right in thinking it's because the the music is obviously is so key because the scene, the drama is escalating, the tension is ratcheting up as the score ratchets up more and more. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah totally. And the editing is fantastic. Does that that final the final boom the cut at the end is like is is legendary? Yeah, yeah. It feels like uh because probably because. Uh, Sergio Leone was Italian and he was the son of of the owner of a theater. Um, and and I think his father was an actor too. So so probably he was very connected to the world of theater, even operas, because it feels very operistic. He was very connected to to music too. Actually, uh, he used to ask Eni Morricone to compose the the music before the shoot. So he was able to play some of the music on set, and by doing so, he was doing some like a very specific musicality to the scenes you know and and you can tell when you see some of those the some of the best moments from from Sergio Leone they they feel almost like from an opera you know especially that film okay great we're playing the final duel from the good the bad and the ugly next we're going to play what you consider cinema's most shocking moment just a moment it would be if it's just a moment i would i would choose the ending of vertigo because I still don't understand. It's so, it's, it feels like coming from nowhere, you know? Uh, when you see James Stewart and suddenly Kim Novak fails from that tower, from the, from the tower of the church, and it, it's so shocking. It's like, it's something that you will never expect from a film, and the film does it. Uh, I mean, and you mentioned Hitchcock earlier. Um, he, like, he deals in the extraordinary. I'm, if I'm remembering it rightly, so she falls and then the film the film just ends yeah actually the other day i saw uh an ending that he was forced to shoot by this by the censorships um that it's nothing it's just a sequence where you can see james stewart coming back home and meeting with his um the, the woman he's uh, living with or his his friend uh and it's nothing you know so it makes it didn't make sense to to use that ending I think I know. I think I know the ending you mean. Was isn't there a in that ending you hear that the the husband the the the, the guy who killed his wife the the husband does it say something like he's being ex, extradited from uh, Europe to America? It's like you get some more a little more closure. The idea that the husband is going to pay for his crime. I, I only saw like a, like a one scene. Uh, maybe maybe the, the the scene was longer, uh-huh. but it was no. There was no dialogue. It was just him, James Stewart, going back home. Oh, okay. I I was I I I saw recently Vertigo in the cinema, and I was watching just the extras. Oh, okay. The bonus uh, features. <laughs> Uh, is that your favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie? Mm, I don't think so. It's one of the best, but 
I really like um, Shadow of a Doubt and Frenzy. Shadow of a Doubt and Frenzy, two of his serial killer movies uh, about, I think, about 30 years apart. Shadow of a Doubt is, what, the 40s and Frenzy is often called the last great Hitchcock movie, the only Hitchcock movie that got an R rating on its initial release. And those are your two favourites. I, I love these two. And also a little clue for what you have picked as the movie that we're going to be screening at the end of our journey is probably one of the greatest serial killer films in cinema history. Right. Well, we're playing the end of Vertigo on the big screen. So next we're going to hear the line or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you. I would say because I I was very inspired by that line doing Society of the Snow. When Tom Hanks says, when Tom Hanks is dying in Saving, Saving Private Ryan, and he says um, to Matt Damon, earn this. And, you know, the whole idea of Society of the Snow was also uh, this idea of rescuing the memory of the dead and paying tribute to them, you know, and the fact that they gave so much, they gave everything they had left for their friends. So this idea of earn you know, that sacrifice was something that was all the time very inspiring in the film. And I re- and I remember we mentioned a couple of times with the writers that moment when Tom Hanks says that. Oh, really? You actually you actually discussed uh, that line when you were with the, the, the screenwriters when you were working on it? Yeah, we, we, re- we discussed the idea, you know, of, of that, the fact that so many people die in order to secure peace and it felt this idea of sacrifice for the, for the, for a greater good and the moment when when Tom Hanks is dying he says that line earned this uh, we thought maybe it was too strong for our characters to to live with that <laughs> I mean they had enough with sur- with survival and <laughs> and you know at the end they did their best you know uh, mm. some of them did more some others didn't they they did what they could you know and and at, at the end it felt like too much this idea of earning the death of other ones you know but it, but yeah for sure there was this idea of sacrifice and and sacrifice for the other ones and for a greater good that it was something that resonates uh from that film in our film yeah, I was I was going to say is at the end of uh, at the end of Saving Private Ryan, it is quite a lot of pressure on poor Matt Damon going forward. It's like yeah, <laughs> you're not going to forget that moment. Yeah, beautiful film though. Right, one final question before we announce the movie you've picked, and this is what you consider the best use of music in a movie, J.A. That's a good question because for use of music, I would say um, because it's integrated in the story is um, the music that Jeremy Irons plays in um, the mission. So this is Roland Joffe's Palm Door winning 1986 film, The Mission, with Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons playing missionaries who visit Paraguay and they're trying to convert the native Guaranis to Christianity. Tell us the piece of music and who composed it. The piece is called Gabriel Saboy in, in, in the soundtrack from Morricone. And he uses that music in order to get the trust from the Guaranis. Right. So this is the moment where Jeremy Irons enters the jungle with his oboe and he plays uh, the piece of music you're talking about for the Guaranis. He gets into the jungle and starts to play with a flute or with the, with the oboe. And he suddenly the Guaranis starts to come up and surround him. Uh, and he slowly starts to get the trust of, of them by using music, which is a beautiful idea. And and from there, Morricone develops a main theme that is one of his best melodies ever. Uh, and the way the, the, the music sounds uh, in the scene and then becomes the, the soundtrack of the film is beautiful too. It's a, it's a great use of music. We hear that wonderful Morricone score echoing around the auditorium. And as it falls silent, it is now time to announce to this packed auditorium, which movie out of all others, J.A., you have picked for us to watch tonight? What are we watching, J.A.? I was going to say Silence of the Lambs because... 
I've been thinking about the film for a long time now and I want to watch it again. So directed by Jonathan Demme, this is 1991's Silence of the Lambs starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins, the first horror film to win Best Picture and the last film to win all five Oscars in the big five Oscar categories. Tell me when you first saw it and what inspired you to want to watch it again? Well, I, I saw it probably four or five years ago. And the more I think about it, the, 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 the more I like it. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect thriller. I love it. I really want to... I was the, the other day I was watching the new True Detective and Jodie Foster is so good on it that I, I, I wanted to watch again. It's a, it's a movie that you can watch a hundred times and you will enjoy it and discover new things and new readings on the story. I like, I like that reading. I remember that Jodie Foster said once, that Silence of the Lambs was basically a movie about a woman trying to help another woman in a world full of stupid men. <laughs> <laughs> which I, which I, I love that, that description. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. But it is fantastic. It, it makes a lot of sense, actually, when you yeah. watch the film. I think one of the great things about it, considering how many times it's been turned into a joke, parodied sketches, the fact that despite all of that in the years afterwards, Anthony Hopkins' performance is still chilling. Is there something in particular, whether it's storytelling, production design, a performance, is there one thing that stands out in this film that you absolutely love? I love the, the references to Nosferatu. When, when, when you get into the, 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 the kind of cell where, where Hannibal Lecter is locked in, uh, and it looks like the, the castle of Dracula. It has this gothic element. <laughs> The the walls made of stone, you know, yeah. it's it's kind of like I'm 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 sure that the cells are not like that in a in a <laughs> in a kind in, in in that kind of institution, you know. But but it's it works as a mm -hmm. as a movie. It works perfectly. Oh, that reveal as the camera comes round to the final cell and he's just standing there. It's it's great. She's taken by a by a terrible man into this corridor, and then as as she walks in. She sees more terrible men on the way to see, <laughs> finally, the most horrible men on earth, you know? So it makes a lot of sense what Julie Foster said about the film. Yeah, yeah, descending the levels of hell. Yeah, it's uh, it does. Um, I remember reading that Sean Connery was actually sent the script before Anthony Hopkins, but turned down the role of Hannibal Lecter because he thought the script was, in quotation marks, disgusting. Um, but I did watch Manhunter, again the other day, and Brian Cox gives a very different but equally chilling performance as Lecter in that. Yeah, very different, yes. I, I should watch that again because I, I saw it 10 years ago, something like that. I don't remember that much. It's very from, it's from the 80s, right? Yeah, and it feels very 80s, but it's still great. Well, I mean, Michael Mann feels very 80 and, and he's great when he feels 80. Yes, that is very true. Very true. And well, that is it. As the curtains close on 1991's The Silence of the Lambs, the guests are smiling, chatting, milling out and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night out at the cinema. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect trip to the movies. J.A., you are going to the cinema with the Lumiere brothers and Georges Milliers in the evening. You book the tickets and we are going to be sitting in the centre, in the very middle of the cinema, the most popular seat on the show. And before we leave the foyer for a snack throughout, you are picking a bucket of sweet popcorn. We leave the foyer and head down towards the auditorium, putting up posters of your most important movie memories. And the first poster we put up in the corridor is your fondest movie memory, which is your very first memory as a child watching Christopher Reeve flying in Richard Donner's original Superman. The next poster we're putting up is the last performance that brought you to tears, and that is Ricardo Darin's performance in Argentina, 1985, a movie that I am watching straight after this show. And the final poster we're putting 
Coming up depicts your unpopular movie opinion, which is that you did not enjoy 1966's Tarkovsky film Andrei Rublev, one of the most respected films in history, but as a caveat, you were very young when you saw it, and you will be watching it again. We leave the corridor, allowing the crowd in, packing out this auditorium. We are playing a trailer that isn't a trailer, but a sign encouraging Peter Weir to make another movie because that is the film you would love to see. The movie moment that makes you pump your fist in the air is the final duel from The Good, The Bad and The Ugly with Ennio Morricone's Ecstasy of Gold playing. The movie moment you consider cinema's most shocking is the end of Hitchcock's Vertigo. And the line of dialogue from a film that most affected you is Tom Hanks's dying words to Matt Damon in Saving Private Ryan, Earn This. The best use of music in a movie is Gabrielle's oboe in The Mission 1986's Roland Joffe Christian missionary film. Once again, Ennio Morricone. And finally, the movie you have decided to screen for us is the multiple Oscar-winning 1991 film The Silence of the Lambs. J.A. Bayona, all that's left to ask is, have you had a good time? Yeah, I had a great time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex. And as J.A.'s cab carries him out of this dimension, away from our virtual cinema, back to reality, we must all leave his movie paradise as well. But before I do say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full video for today's J.A. Bayona interview and indeed for every guest at our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there if you'd like to watch the interview. And as I said at the start, do help us grow the podcast by hitting that subscribe button. Also, if you do wish to get in touch with us, once again, we are at Trip to Movies Pod. That is at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.